The two Jills, a psychologist and psychic intuitive, reveal mind-blowing insights that turn psychology, self-help, and conscious teachings on their heads. Why? Because they work. Real help, sincere growth is here. Welcome to Sight. Hello and welcome to Stipes Podcast. Hi, Jill. Hey, Jill. We're doing Fixers Anonymous today. <laughs> I think both I you and that. I have, have a lot of a lot of fun layers of experience here being fixers and problem solvers, not only for ourselves, but also helping other people with their um, you know, challenges and helping them solve their problems. It can become almost addictive and it can become such a almost like a subconscious role that we play. And it's so often at the opposite end of feeling zen, feeling inner peace, feeling like you enjoy life and less stress. So let's do it. Yes. <laughs> yes. Let's do it. Let's get into yeah. it, honestly, because I think that last thing that you said is really, it's so important. It's that where is our happiness going? Where is our zen going? Where is our joy going? And I personally love my fixer. I really love my fixer. I'm really, really good at it. But at a certain point, I think it just usurped everything and took over my life. Like I became like the one track pony. And then I would look at people and be like, how can I fix them? And I would look at projects and how can I fix them? Like there wasn't anything that wasn't seen through the lens of I could fix that. And so I think, you know, Lately, I'm coming out of that. And that's why I love I love doing this today. It's so good. And it's a process for any of us that do have the ability to um, to address problems in a very complete and okay, that's done kind of way. It takes a lot of momentum to get off of that path and get just into a mindset of can I fix this? Right. Starting with that question. Is this something I can fix? Right. Um, a sibling's addiction, um, somebody else's mental illness, somebody else's financial crisis, um, a child, especially an adult child or a, a near adult, young adult child that is having their own challenges with maybe school or friend groups. There are so many ways that it's so healthy to step back and go, is this mine? Can I support them? How can I best support them without feeling that my kind of name of, is on responsibility for fixing that? It's an adjustment. It's hard. I still have a hard time. I'm like, okay, this is not mine. This is not mine. This is not mine. Jill, do you have an example of one of a situation where you were ready to, to kind of get vested in it energetically, all, all entangled into it? And then you were like, actually, let me step back and untangle from this. And then I'll share an example. I honestly think too. I do it every day. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and so that's why, you know, just it is an addiction. That's why we're calling this fixers anonymous because I am addicted to that high of fixing stuff, right? Like that's, I like that. But, but more recently I have been saying, is this mine? You know, is this mine to fix? And it particularly is satisfying when it's in relation to my children. And the reason why it's so satisfying there is because, for instance, my, you know, my daughter was recently just has been having horrible, horrible migraines. 
and they last, you know, just 10 days at a pop, you know, it's, it's just too long. And I realized at a certain point in her suffering, I'm like, I got to kick into gear. I got to get in there. I got to, I got to, got to, got to. And I actually flew home from Florida early because I just wanted to be closer to see what I could do. I was just really in there. And she has doctors, she has professionals, she's got it all going on. And at a certain point, I offered a, um, like a therapist of mine and it really pissed her off. It really, and it was a good reminder for me to, and look, obviously I was getting in there because I was so stressed for me and for her and I just wanted it better. And so there was a lot of justification for me adding another layer of, have you tried this? But it it wasn't my place. And God bless her. She, she blasted me for it. Um, part migraine, part irritation, part everything, but she really did put me back in my place. And, and I appreciated it. And what's interesting is that my fixer had not, I waited, you know, it didn't come out right in the very beginning. I was riding the wave and then I couldn't take it anymore. And I did, I did engage. So that's not, it, it was a success because I waited. It was not a success because I still engaged, but then it became successful again when she put me back in my place and I realized, okay, this isn't mine to fix. And then there is these, this freedom. It's not even freedom. You get this, like, I felt so proud of her that she was on it and that she was doing it. And so watching her, not thinking about the pain at this point, but watching her take care of her actually, made, I don't know, it just brought me a lot of like, this is all right. This is, this is okay. It's not mine, it's hers. And look how well she's doing, right? Which you don't get. And, you know, when I, when I dive in to fix something, it, it, it infantilizes the other person right? It takes away their sense that they're doing a good job. It really robs them of, you know, of their feeling of success when they fix something. It's like, I'm taking it from them. So allowing other people to fix is a gift. I like that. There can be related to what you just said, there can be an element of condescension, that the the receiver of the help feels, even if it's just subconscious, because if you really think about it, somebody's saying, you know, basically, and I'm not saying you were doing this, but in general, those of us that are fixers, we're ready to launch. Like, oh, I know, I know exactly who you should see and exactly what to do, or I have the best ideas, maybe better than your ideas, and I'm just gonna uh, unsolicited, you know, unveil them on you for your love, you know, for your benefit. To the receiver, that's basically saying, oh, you don't think I got this? You don't think I have a brain and I can figure this out and I know who to call and I know where to start, right? Now, not everybody's going to, you know, receive it in a condescending way, but some will. And depending on what kind of relationship you have with that person, um, I know I get annoyed when, you know, I'm talking to somebody I don't know very well, whether it's a, I mean, I'm trying to think of just a totally neutral example. You're, you know, at a restaurant or something and the server walks up and you're talking about like how you had a bad experience on an airline. Oh, you know what you do? And I'm like, 
I'm not talking to you. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just like, I'm not talking to you. You know what I mean? Um, or a neighbor just yeah. kind of launching in on, they have the answers for you. I just, I do find it disrespectful in a way. So I know for myself with my work, I, I'm intending to be, and I, I think, I think I'm good at this, knock on wood, um, respecting that I do have ideas, but they, you get to decide whether they're better than your own ideas. You get to decide what you say yes to, yeah. but I do have good ideas. And with my family and friends and loved ones, I'm super respectful. And in a way they've trained me, my daughter's trained me really well in terms of I, you know, like when they were babies, you know, like me do it. And I'm like, okay, oh God, this is hard. I really want to do it for you. You know, they've been training me since their births (laughs) of the things, not only they could do themselves, they wanted to do for themselves, right? So this opportunity to really recognize what kind of role do you want to have in that in that challenge with that other person? And what role do you sense they want from you? And maybe even having that discussion. So that's great when it's more of a personalized kind of challenge that's being faced. But the bigger example that I have is the, is the, that comes to my mind is the bigger one of, you know, it's, we're recording this in 2023. And I still have vivid memories of spring of 2019 with COVID and the government and policy leaders reactions, public policy officials reaction to what we should do. Oh, we should shut down. And I'm just like, we're going to shut down from an airborne illness. I don't think this is going to go well. And I couldn't keep it to myself because there's a part of me with my audience and with my community that I feel like it's almost my job to offer my insights about things given my giftedness. So it doesn't mean it's going to be 100% right, but sometimes I get good reads on things. So I was, you know, trying to be a voice for those that were that were feeling similarly that I'm not trying to be rebellious here. I'm not trying to be irresponsible, but this doesn't make sense. This is illogical, right? Um, and then interestingly enough, now it's the, you know, Dr. Drew is still doing a huge kind of post-mortem about what did we learn and bringing MDs on and um, educators and scientific researchers on, okay, what did we learn from, from what didn't go right with COVID so that we don't make those mistakes again? But at the time, Jill, I had a moment, it was late April, 2019. I was active on social media, active with my community, just sharing, okay, let's keep an eye out for this. Let's keep an eye out for that. This doesn't, this policy doesn't make sense. I don't think that's the right approach, but okay. You know, there's rules in place and laws we got to face. At the end of April, though, I remember just going, this thing could suck me in for a long time. And I don't want to become an expert at this. I don't have a background in public policy. I'm not a medical professional. And I'm not a scientist. But my gut just told me some of this stuff was right. But I was just, I just felt myself kind of, I had my name on a, a voice of concern that I had put my own name on. And then I was just kind of peeling my name off of that, just going, I think I've said all I wanted to say, and there's other things I want to get to. And I could feel me becoming an angry, just kind of like militant, almost version of my Jill. And I was just like, I don't like this me. And that was a huge moment for me. And I think that happens in a lot of these types of roles. I don't want to be the watchdog. I don't want to be the the police officer, you know, meant to enforce this thing. And I also, I don't have the heart of an activist. I really don't. I'm a lot more of a live and let live. And I'll, 
I'll clearly state my voice and opinion and views about things, but I'm not going to, you know, have a sign and jam it down your throat. I really respect autonomy and individuality and self, um, you know, uh, agency, personal agency that everybody gets to decide for themselves a lot of choices that we may disagree with. And that doesn't mean I'm assigned to make them change their mind. That to me is the heart of an activist yeah. in a lot of ways. That's not me. So it was just like, okay, I got sucked had- into that also when I was, you know, after I got sick years ago, right? And so um, my focus was on health. And at that time, it was environmental. It was, it was a lot. It was my food. Um, so I was changing a lot of things kind of all at once. And it did, um, it kind of had this, the same effect where I was just seeing how broken everything was, our food supply, how broken our environmental policies were, you know, how broken our school system was and their, their food system. And it was just like, it was crushing me to, to kind of see all of this I'm like, this can't be fixed, right? This just, it is so broken. And my first thing was, my first reaction was like, we're doomed, right? It was it was super negative, super down. And then my second reaction to it after, you know, you process kind of, it's almost like grief. Um, then you you just learn how to live. It's like you're saying, it's this, live and let live. I'm going to be exposed to chemicals. I'm going to, you know, drink water that's probably, you know, been fracked. I don't really have any idea, right? What, what's going on, but to be so mindful in a, I got to fix it. That's the problem with the fixer is that you first have to see what's wrong. You have to look for what's wrong. And that's a mindset that will tank you. It tanked me. And so I had to shift up my mindset, which is in everything, I'm just going to look for what's right. And it's not putting ice cream on shit. It's definitely not burying my head in the sand. There is an awareness that I don't want to be the fixer because I, I just don't want to see what's wrong. I miss all the good stuff. You miss what's right. If you're looking for what's wrong, you just do. It's a trade-off. Right. So it is a trade off. In my example with the COVID, I just remember a moment of kind of another day of getting online and and kind of, you know, offering another another viewpoint that I didn't feel was being well represented. And I just kind of had this icky feeling. And I just I had the sense of I don't like this me. I don't like being this Jill. And it was just like, oh, my God, like, what does that look like for me to not do this anymore? to not fight this fight. And it wasn't giving up. It was giving in to a situation that's bigger than me. Right? Yes. So that's a and knowing that I, there's I, somebody I else there. Interesting, right? I am a I am a, a deep optimist. So when I take the big long view of of how long humans have been on the planet, which that date of when we've been on the planet keeps going farther and farther back in history, which I just absolutely love. I think that's so cool. We've been through so much. We've been through so much. So that huge, you know, timeless sort of view that I, that I have access to just goes, you know what, this does look like it could take us out, but every single generation 
has had some sense of an apocalyptic scene that everybody's going to be wiped out or huge portions are going to be, you know, we can't survive this. And they're always wrong. They're always, they've been wrong way more than they've been right. So that data, that logic helps me just kind of go, maybe I don't need to lose my Jill, the Jill that I like best to this issue or that topic. And I just stepped back from it. Doesn't mean I stopped caring. And for me, it doesn't mean I stopped looking at it. Um, but I just stopped investing so much of myself into it. And that for me yes. was freedom. And I, I gave myself back the Jill that I like best, which is aware and informed, but not an act, not an activist. I just, not that I'm anti-activist. Okay. It's just not me. I, I don't have that slow and steady win the race kind of activist. You know, I'm like, it's an all or nothing. I have two settings, zero and a hundred, I tell everybody. So this activism that just requires you spend your whole life toiling and, you know, like even with the gun, you know, the the uh, gun policy, it's like all those activists and they're like, oh, we got this little thing. And I'm like, I'd rip all my hair out. That is so unsatisfying to me. But I went through a period, you know, because we like to give um, some ideas of how we work with stuff. So I went through a period, this was my detox of the fixer was, I broke it into three categories because I was also in the apocalyptic, you know, environmental, whatever space. It was knowing what's God's work, what's my work, and what's your work, right? And so I put so much of that kind of big, big picture stuff, that unfixable stuff into that's God's work, right? That's not that's not my work. I'm just going to leave it over there. Um, and then, so with everything, I was like, is this mine to fix? And if it was, meaning it was directly in front of me, what was directly in front of me was mine. And that's the way I looked at it. And so it was this sweep your own front porch. You don't have to go looking for problems to solve. You can stay pretty close to home, keep it pretty tight and Keep your fixer fed without sort of getting to that point where you're either obsessed or you're, to to your point, Jill, you're sort of losing yourself in these, you know, kind of, it's like quicksand, really. Um, a lot of things are not fixable and maybe there'll be a shift that, will and it won't be a problem anymore but as it stands the state that they're in with the information that we have it's not really it's not really fixable and i've i've become very comfortable with that and again not in a fatalistic way not in a nihilistic way just in i'm going to continue to do me and if everybody continues to sweep their own front porch that alone will solve an exponential amount of problems. Yeah. The other layer complementary to what you're saying is that our brains, we, we misidentify the, the problem and the potential risk all the time, right? All the time. It's like, oh, well, if that's, if I'm seeing this and this is going on, that means this, right? So that's where this catastrophic apocalyptic kind of mentality and ideology and energy system starts to kind of creep in, right? But again, if you take the the really, really long view of like history of, of humans on the planet or our relatives, 
<laughs> right? The Neanderthals or something like that. You really look at it and just go, okay, so maybe this isn't going to take us out, right? But for anyone that has the ability to over-catastrophize a challenge or a problem, it's really great to kind of be aware of your tendency to do that and just kind of create your own pause button and say, but is that true? Is that actually the the, the uh, foretold conclusion that because this is happening? Another weird example I have, I have a family member that eats terribly. I mean, a nutritionist would be appalled at what this person eats on a regular daily basis. And I finally convinced that person, like, please just go get your labs done. Just see so that you can see possibly and be more motivated um, to make some changes there. And her labs were freakishly good. It was, I was almost mad. Because <laughs> when her labs came back and they, the the certified nurse practitioner was just like, yeah, you know, these level, these are really good. And I'm just like, how is that possible? Right? When she told me about it. So I'm like, you're like, your body's a miracle because what you're putting in and how your body is high functioning, and she's a super high functioning person, but just what I know that she eats every day, I'm just like, I don't even see how this is possible. Now it does show, right, physically it, that, you know, she's not skating, you know, away from the, the, the challenge, the challenge there, but on a mechanical physiological level, I mean, she's high functioning on the output, on the daily functioning of her and what she achieves in life. And the lab results are just like, this is a miracle. So it's things like that that also make me kind of rethink just kind of this means that A plus B equals C, because we underestimate the miraculousness of humanity and the human body all the time. So I do give you know, this dose of grace, dose of grace there. Yeah. We're working with, um, there are factors here that we haven't discovered yet. You know, they're always coming out with different aspects of food that, so we think we know, oh, vitamin C, you eat fruit because of vitamin C, you know, the old thing. It's just, we're missing so much data and so much information. And the brain is really a very good at going with very little data and forming an opinion on like one data point. And what I had to do also, another um, like tactic that I used for myself to, to work, uh, you know, this health thing had made me so crazed, right? Um, was that I had to look up why somebody said something was good for me. You know, if I'm looking up chia seeds or I'm looking up I don't know, eggs or whatever. And then I would go and make sure that I found the same article, you know, saying that they were bad for me. And I wanted to do that so that I could understand, like, we're all just winging it. Nobody really knows anything. The brain just harps on things. And it usually harps on things that are, you know, that that put restrictions on us. Let's put it this way. Once the brain harps on something, we then act on that restriction that it created. So if it says sugar is bad for you, then we have to act on that. And we have reactions to those actions, right? We start to feel some, some of us can start to feel like, well, I really liked that. And now I can't have that. So you get this, um, that you have to sacrifice to be healthy, or you have to sacrifice to be beautiful. You know, you, the brain is starting to put 
what you love at odds with your health. And so I really watch those associations very, very closely. Um, and it doesn't, it never really works out that if you just go by what you like or enjoy and you don't excess things, right? If, if you don't let the brain take you to an addiction of it, then our brain, our bodies are miraculous. They are filters. We have organs that are specifically filters. Detoxers so, even. <gasps> detoxers. That's what they're there for. So we're not as fragile as we think we are. And that was another piece that I had to tell myself, like, Jill, you're not that fragile because my brain was telling me this is in your food and that's in your air and this is in your mattress and this is in your, and it, it made me feel like I was like a walking glass. So I had to train myself again and just say, you're not that fragile. And, and all of this was from that fixer mentality of there's always something better I can be doing. There's always something healthier. There's always something meaning that where I am is wrong and where I am is in a constant need to be fixed. So when we're talking about, you know, the fixer, we're not taking it lightly. This is an addictive quality that takes over a lot of different areas. There's amazing function to it, but there are um, there is amazing dysfunction to it. And just look at your spectrum of are you using it to get that enjoyment or when does it turn sour and you start using it against you? And look at those areas, you know, look at them all. Look at the global pictures, look at the myopic things that are closer to you. Uh, don't leave any stone unturned. Yes. Um, in terms of what you're trying to fix about you or the world. Yeah. And I, I do love the strategy of starting with the, the process of, okay, so I, I'm doing this or I'm acting this way because I think the problem is this. And that problem seems to, everybody that might have resources seem to uh, convey that that problem will lead to this. And that's what I'm trying to avoid, that you really just slow your brain down, just really take a breath, step back from that, maybe write that whole statement down for a moment and just step back. And for me, it's a pause of not even true. Now, I don't lean so much on the side of we don't know anything. I, that's not that's not my operating system, but that could work, right? It seems to work for you because I think I heard you say literally, we don't, what did you say, Jill? It was, uh, we don't know anything. We're not, there are so many factors that we don't know that are okay. also contributing, like for instance, to the health of that person, Yeah. right? How can they be eating junk food? And, you know, so there's there are other factors there and I'm okay. relying on the factors that we don't know, yes. not on the convoluted, confusing ones that are contradictory. Okay, and it sounds like your strategy, if I'm gonna use the words literally from before is let's just pretend we don't know anything. I guess another strategy I'll offer is, it doesn't have to be that we don't know anything, but what we know changes all the time. So for me, and that may seem so subtle and I'm you know, digging into the gray, I'm not meaning to, but I, I take words literally. So for some people, if that works better for you in terms of, okay, what we know today, it's in sand, it will change. I mean, those of us that are old enough to remember, um, okay, eggs are, eggs are, of course, they're, of course, they're great for you. Oh, wait, not the yolks. You gotta have an egg white omelet. 
And then there's other communities that are like, no, you only want the yolks. I'm just like, oh my God, we're all over the place, right? So I've created a tolerance and an acceptance for the variability in what we think we know and what we think we know is right. That has created peace for me because my brain is no longer chasing what, well, they just said that was right. How can they both be right? And my brain will just start spinning and spiraling and I'll start just shutting down, right? So for me, it's like, okay, they say this, say they, they say this, we've got to make a choice. What kind of, how are you going to do your eggs, Jill? You know what I mean? And then I just go forward. But again, I do have a deep respect for the, the human body and the amazingness of the human system that it can accept far more kind of error or imperfections then we would give it credit. I'm so glad you brought up this whole topic of um, toxic environments, literally physically like mold and, you know, food and all these things are just, you know, everything is waiting to kill us because I have so many clients that I've met with over the years that are, I mean, I've had just amazing, I've heard amazing stories of just really sad situations of somebody that they feel like they can't go outside their house, they're a musician, but they feel like they can't perform because the level of mold and mildew and moisture in a bar environment isn't conducive for them anymore. They can't do it. They'll get sick. And I was like, but what about outdoor venues? You, you know, you live in a four season climate. There's probably a, probably five to six months of the year where you could perform outdoors, right? And it was so funny because her whole focus had been on what she can't do. And I can't do that anymore. What am I going to do? I can't do that. Versus like you were saying in a way, what can you do? Let's focus on that. And maybe and your that's ability... where the fixer is great, right? Mm-hmm. So we shut down the fixer when we should be using it and we use it when we should be shutting it down, right? It's a very, we, we have to watch it because I, like you say, where are we now? I don't care where we came from. What's the next, what's the next step, right? And that's a beautiful thing to say, Okay, I'm going to bring my fixer online for that. And it's almost like you're not going to fix the situation. You're going to, maybe it's when your fixer turns into like a a thinker outside the boxer, right? So you're actually not fixing the situation that got you here. For instance, you can't fix the mold in the bar. And so does the fixing program end there? I can't fix it. It's permanently broken. We're done. No, there's another layer to that program, which is problem solving. But if if you get stuck and many, many people do, they're like, I can't get a job because I don't have that experience. Right. And that's a dead end. So many of our, you know, our, of our I can't fix things leads to pretty depressing dead ends for us. And you and I, I think, are espousing accept the dead end and pivot, right? Use that fixer to pivot. It's still a very functional program in the right hands. Yeah. Yeah. And are you enjoying your you? And I think that matters. To me, that's such a big part of quality of life and, and having a life that you feel you'd, you'd enjoy living again, right? That's a kind of a marker of whether you're enjoying your you're you in this reality as your as your incarnation is would you do you again? Well, not if I have to solve everybody's problems. Who asked you to solve everybody's problems? Well, not if I have to keep worrying about everybody. Who asked you to keep worrying about everybody, right? So yeah. many choices. If we just give ourselves enough of a pause to reflect on 
do you like that you? Are you forcing yourself into these roles and into these ways of being that you don't even like you? <laughs> Why would other people, <laughs> right? Some people are like, exactly. I don't know where my friends and family went. Nobody, nobody wants to hang out anymore. Well, do you like you? Well, <laughs> actually. <laughs> Not so much I, right now. I, I will when everything gets fixed, damn it. You know what I mean? It's like, well, yes. what if? What if those things don't get fixed? And in the meanwhile, you've you've lost so much of your enjoyment and your lively sense of you. And so did everybody else. You've been depriving everybody, including yourself, of the you that you could also be in exact with nothing having changed, right? Yes. I'm no longer under the delusion that I can fix all of these things, right? And that right. it was a delusion. Wait, there's a lot of arrogance there, a lot of overconfidence there. So having a redefined sense of, yes, I'm a problem solver, but the humility of, and there's only so many things I can solve. And maybe it was yeah. never my job to solve all those problems. Yeah, I think that's perfect. Uh, you know, it's it's a program run amok, right? Watch, watch for that program run amok. And you did say, you know, when you were just describing, we put ourselves on hold in anticipation of, I'll be fine when this problem is solved. Right. So there is a very there is a like a, you know, to use your term suspension there um, that's created. And that's another thing to look out for. You know, are you are you so focused on on fixing this problem so that you could get on with your life? That's that's not a good sign. Right. Even if you're suffering. So I've been sick recently. We've mentioned it on, you know, on some of the podcasts we've done previously. And it was definitely some PTSD, you know, going back um, from being sick um, a couple of years ago. And so it was this, you know, kind of um, the brain kicked in all of the same. I got to fix this. I got to fix that. I need water filters. I need clean food, you know, it all kind of came back. And it, it really got to a point where there was no food that I could eat, that wouldn't set off whatever my symptoms were, there was literally nothing. And, and so my brain was kind of still saying, so what are the things you can't eat? I'm like, it's not about what I'm eating. Right? At a certain point, you, you have to realize there's something else going on, I have to get to the bottom of it, stop trying to decide if what what I can eat. It's just in the it's an erroneous association. It's looking at the wrong factors. Right. So even within, you know, within this latest illness that I had, I was I was thinking it was a food related, allergy related thing. It wasn't. But for many months, that's what everybody thought it was. And if I just got the right recipe of the right foods with the right whatever, then I wouldn't be setting off these very painful side effects. And it, none of that was none of that was it. And now I'm back to eating whatever it is I want to eat and everything is fine. And, you know, whatever infection is, you know, was taken over my body seems to be slowly, you know, thankfully working its way out. But it was a, um, again, getting into that misinterpret, not knowing what the problem was. And the fixer doesn't need to know what the problem is to start fixing. It'll, with without really understanding what's going on, it will kick in anyway. And that's the spaghetti at the wall method, which a lot of times I do espouse when you have nowhere to go, just go somewhere. 
Um, but it's it's not very efficient. It was definitely not efficient. Do you hear my pup? Okay, we're back. We could hear Jill's sweet doggy in the background. Jill, do you want to? Yes, so she's my, okay. My, she's okay, but she's okay. she's got a lot to say right now. It's that time. Okay. It's switching hour for her. <laughs> she's going to be a little vocal. So I like um, I like this topic of um, addictive kind of problem solvers, and I like how well it relates to this idea of we we misidentify problems or over-dramatize problems all the time, right? I love people, I really recommend for people to get get outside the bubble that because they tend to be communities that form around these problems. And in a lot of cases, they're, that's not liberating, it's actually regressive and suppressive because there's other opinions about a lot of those things that may actually be more um, more effective and actually problem solving, or at least re-identifying the problem, right? And I mean, that is something like what I do, Jill, I know that that's something that you do, but I mean, anyone that's not in that bubble may may serve, right? It could be somebody's life partner. It's like, yeah, I, I know that you're trying to track down all like, like we gotta get rid of all the mold, but I mean, it could be your life partner that can honestly and lovingly and respectfully say to you, babe, we live in the world. We can't live in a bubble. Like there's mold in the world. There's mold on the leaves when they fall, in the, you know, in the autumn, um, you know, so let's maybe redefine, recharacterize what we're facing here. And maybe that'll help us be more effective at feeling as healthy and complete and whole and high functioning as possible amidst the challenges that we may never totally get rid of. I'm I'm highly bothered by the situation that so many people um, in some of these kind of bubbles of thought that they're really like, yes, if we just had this, if we could just get rid of the mold, if we could just, um, you know, have all the money for cancer research, then we get rid of cancer. And I completely disagree. I number one, I don't think we can ever get rid of all the mold. And, you know, let's let's be realistic here about, OK, what what's in a problem zone and is that metric actually realistic? Because um, lead levels and all that stuff can change and be variable in certain situations. Um, yeah, I wish I wish it were in a way that simple. If we just had all the money for cancer research, then we wouldn't have cancer. I think that's a lie. I really think that's a lie. I don't. I mean, a lot of politicians when they say yes, if we just had the money, then we could, you know, end this and this and homelessness. And I'm like, I don't. I don't think that's true. And I don't know if they're lying to us or lying to themselves. I just don't believe that's true. I, I think it's bigger than money, right? It's it's a bigger, yeah. complicated, it's, messier money is not problem. The problem. Exactly. Right. But that's the what the fundraisers won't tell you that. We're, you know, we're this many hundreds of millions away from our goal of, you know, creating this center and you know, doing this research. And I mean it it's not that it it's not that it doesn't do anything, but <laughs> it's not the it's not the full solution. It's bigger than that. And I like honesty with ourselves. So that we can be literally more real and authentic and sincere about what we can solve where and what we need to make different accommodations for so that it prompts our compassion versus keep activating our brain and chasing solutions that in some cases waste money. That pisses me off. Yeah, I mean, and even just the way, for instance, the government works right now, right? It's such a behemoth, right? It's such a slow worker that... By the time, you know, the 
the problem that they're solving for was 10 years ago. You know, I mean, there's just no, it just even in a, a timeline fashion, you know, we're a lot of things we do just don't make sense, right? And that's the unreasonable reason that you and I talk about. And the brain is very good at um, looking at something and and it's very good at gaining consensus and uh, see everybody agrees with me and it's still just dead wrong, right? And so I think we agree on the fact, you know, do I have to throw everything out? No, but I'm much more cognizant of, what my goals are when I'm thinking about things, right? And I'm also just kind of cognizant that, yes, everything right now is our best guess, right? It's our best guess. And those guesses change. And even science, it's our best guess with what we have. It's not It's not the ultimate truth. What I say, what is true is always true. It's not evolving truth. What is true is always true. And so when you look at something and you say, is it always true that this person behaves like that? Is it always true that money will has will solve this problem, right? Is it is it always true? And then when it's not, that's where choices come in. And choices are what we get to do here in the face of not knowing what the problem is 90% of the time and not knowing what the truth is, maybe all the time, <laughs> seriously, right? And so we get to choose. And that's why I say I throw that stuff out because I don't want it to muddy my thinking. I want to know what I think. I want to know what I feel. And that's the questions you're asking. Do you like your Jill right now? Do you like who you're being when you think this way? That's a red flag. That's not something to just push off to the side. That's really, really important. The way you think about yourself, what your thoughts make you think about yourself, right? The quality of your life, the quality of your thinking, the quality of yeah. your pursuits. There has to be a a function to it that's that ends that ends you up in a good place if you've cut everything out of your life because you're afraid of your environment you're afraid of your food you're afraid of your friends you're afraid of guns you're afraid of who knows what there is no life there right your brain has taken over your existence and it's left you with basically no choices that's oh. disturbing and the lack of free, it is disturbing and the lack of free will involved. I, I have witnessed so many times individuals that they're not aware of how a certain challenge or problem from their perspective has hijacked their entire sense of being. There is a guy named Sam Harris, and I'm going to forget his book. I didn't read the book, but he has a podcast. It's kind of in the vein of mindfulness. He studied directly with the Dalai Lama, like he had the robes on and everything. And He's gone full in. And then he got, I think, a PhD or a master's in some sort of cognitive research. So he's a very interesting person. And while um, President Trump was President Trump, when Trump was president, he, to me, lost his mind. I mean, he was so 
busy making sure that his audience knew that not only he was not a supporter of Trump, he thought Trump was basically akin to the Antichrist. And I think Sam is Jewish. Anyway, (laughs) so there was just this whole like, he went overboard making sure that we all knew that he wasn't Trump supporter. And in hindsight, I realized it's because his audience was a mixture of political ideologies and a mixture of different, you know, uh, presidential voter voting record. And it, to me, it seemed in, in retrospect, like he was just wanting to make sure that he would never be called a Trump supporter by anyone that would, you know, that was more democratic leaning and definitely anti-Trump. Like, well, you have Trumpers in your audience so that he could go, no, no, no. I try to push him out every day. <laughs> I try to make sure they know that I think he's a big orange man, a big orange baby. You know, so he's insulting, he's condescending. It just felt amateurish and emotionally immature in a lot of ways. But that was just, an, I haven't listened to him since. Because it, regardless of my winning record, it didn't matter. That wasn't why I was there. But his over um, overreach of, he, to me, he lost his, the Sam that I know I liked. He lost it to this this thing, this cause, that this activism that he just couldn't let go of or wouldn't let go of. And I don't. I don't really care to hear anything else he has to say after that. But I'm sad. I'm sad about it. <laughs> and I wonder if he did that in his personal life too. I know he's a dad with kids younger than younger than ours still. And I'm just like, oh, that would be so sad if he's just busy being mad that Trump was ever in office and could ever be in office again. That just it kind of yeah. breaks my heart because he's he's such a interesting, intelligent, um, thoughtful, you know, caring person. And he just morphed into Look, this. everybody has oh. their threshold, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody has their threshold when you, you. it's almost like, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, not good. <laughs> you know, it's like, who knows what's going to drive us over the edge, right? In my case, it seems to be medical shit all the time. You know, that just like, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. And then I get hit with some whack, wacky situation, you know, and... I imagine people are saying, you know, that like it, it makes you crazy. It was literally making me crazy. Um, and I didn't know, I just didn't know what to do with myself. And so all of the Zen, all of the stuff that I practiced, it was definitely for a time just kind of out the window. Right. I'm like, I, I got to get a handle on this. So but those are, I think, that's where I'm kind of coming out is that, and and I think I've heard you say this too, it's like, this is a chaotic place, right, where we live. There's not always an immediate solution to what's ailing us on any level, psychologically, mentally, emotionally, physically, um, existentially. We don't, we don't immediately have those answers. And I think we have to give ourselves just a lot more space to be in the the you know the space between i don't know what's wrong and i don't know how to fix it i don't know if i can fix it how do we live there right that's a really you know like in sam harris's case he's like i can only live after trump is out of office but look what's going on now that there's no end point to that there may not be an end point to my illness i just don't know and so this idea is we have to figure out how to live in this. I'm not even calling it uncertainty, right? It is, that's not really what the issue is, at least not for me. Um, it's 
how do you live when things aren't fixed? When things aren't solvable? Doesn't mean they're terminal. It just means that they're they're not, I guess, yes, they're not under your control, but nothing really is. So again, it's not that. But for me, it was just like, I'll be okay when, right? There was this real, there was this real long pause for me. And I want to figure out how to not pause. I want to figure out how to live without, you know, the problem, not knowing the problem and not knowing the solution. Yeah, I don't have the answer to that. <laughs> I have some ideas, but I do want to go to one thing that you said. You said nothing is in your control. Do you? I want to make sure you really believe that. Do you believe nothing is in your control? No, I actually, I, there are things that are not in, that, that I haven't figured out how to control. Okay. Um, so, so no, I think I have a lot of agency and I think that what's in my control is how I respond to things. And so I want to do better in terms of what's in my control, which is responding in that gap, right? How to be in, in that gap and be perfectly okay, even if I'm not okay. Yeah. To me, that's the invitation. That's the beginning yes. of the invitation to, to really living right? Because it's, it's so, it's so self-delusional for, for any of us as individuals, especially that are idealists. And I think we've done a different podcast on idealism and perfectionistic, right? Which relates very closely to this topic in a good way. This, this idea that, well, I, I know you don't understand, Jill. I can't be okay. You know, people would say to me, I can't be okay because my kid isn't perfect yet. And I'm not perfect yet. And there's this to worry about and that to fix and that to solve and this big thing that's a train wreck and whatever. I'm like, oh, okay, I get it. So you're putting on hold. I would venture to say perpetually, you being the you that you want to be, you being the you that you like to be, and you living fully alongside the messiness and alongside the, the, the imperfections that are everywhere, while also giving yourself more, yourself more space to to create and explore and be curious about, okay, what does a me look like that's not pretending anything's gonna be perfect anytime soon or ever, right? I had to go through exactly that process. And it was kind of fun because my brain was filled with self-deception about, yes. about what was real and what wasn't real and, and what was gonna be perfect and what wasn't gonna be perfect. And I, I love that part of my brain because she's an idealist, she's super creative and she gets stuff wrong. That version of me gets stuff wrong all the time. So I'm normally watching out for her and that's way better. And, you know, I want to, I do want to back up. It's not that I don't have the answers is that it's for me. I, I know that it's my brain. That's, that's literally stopping me. You know, it's my brain that's in my way. So when, when I get sick or something happens that I, you know, I can't stop thinking about it. That's my obsessive nature that I have. That was the PTSD that kind of came in. So I typically, my brain, I've managed to quiet it very much. But when I was sick, the, the obsessive, you know, looking at everything as a symptom and thinking that everything was related and the brain, you know, trying to connect all the dots to something that was just crazy. You know, I couldn't just have a pain that had to be related to something else. So my brain was highly creative, 
highly in the wrong direction, right? And it was really that looking for a, a needle in a haystack, a, an unsolvable puzzle that it was then going to put itself on. So it was my job at that point to watch my thoughts very closely. And the couple of things that I did was, I don't know what that is. If I had a pain or if I had something happen, I'd be like, I don't know what that is. I don't know what that is. And that's my way of stopping my brain. Other people have different ways to do it. But for me, I always say the best way to shut my brain off is to get stupid. So like, I don't know. I don't know. I know what my brain wants to say it is, wants to say it's, you know, the beginning of the end, but I don't know what that is. And so that was a big, you know, I had to pull that one out of the, you know, out of the closet. I haven't used it in a really yeah. long time, um, but mm -hmm. it had to come back out and I had to just be like, I don't know. Yeah, we're seeing That's your sweet doggy in the background, by the way. So I know. I'm, I'm sending her love. I should, I want to let everyone know she just turned 16, everybody. So she is definitely a, she's a senior. She's an elder lady puppy. <laughs> and Jill's on top of it. And yeah, she's definitely like, oh, what's going on? Yeah, I don't know. We're wrapping up here. One final thing that I'd like to add is that as we are, as professional fixers or, you know, perpetual fixers, whichever, um, sometimes we... I think we pretend that other people aren't aware of what we're thinking just because we're not saying it. So I have a loved one that um, in a work environment, they were saying, you know, they were kind of concerned about someone's, you know, behavior and their choices. And, and I said like, so what did you, did you say that to them? And they were like, Oh no, I never say that to them. And I'm like, but you're thinking it. And you know that they can pick up on what you're thinking, right? Energetically, you're you're basically transmitting what you're thinking, whether you say it or not. And that person was just like, wait, really? And I'm like, yeah, they don't have to be intuitive. People can get a vibe. Anyone that's paying attention can get a vibe that, oh, okay, that person is not approving of what I'm doing here or looking at me weird when I do this, whether you're the best poker player or not. So the strategy for that is to be aware right? Of, okay, these are my thoughts. What do I want to do about these thoughts and about this concern that I have, you know, for a teammate at work or, you know, a friend or family member or whatever. And by doing, taking some of the steps that you and I, Jill, are talking about, they can actually reconfigure their brain to not even have those thoughts or to add new thoughts. That's my favorite strategy is, oh, yes, I agree. I wouldn't do their, the job the way that they're doing that job but they're not my job and their job is not my job. So I'm going to just let those thoughts go because they're unproductive. They're a waste of my time. I'm not doing anything about these. I'm just letting them sit there and it's creating possibly more attention for that person to do their best work. And I really like that because I think one of the, you know, kind of precursors to fixing is that judgment, right? And people feel judgment. And so to watch your brain judging in service of fixing, right? That is, they go together, right? You have to, you have to have judged something in need of fixing, which means something is broken, something is wrong, somebody is wrong, right? So I think if you're really intent on figuring out this fixer, you can actually start with judgment, 
right? And just see it because to Jill's point, a lot of times you may have the judgment and the idea of fixing and even say, okay, that's not my job. That's keeping your fixer alive and to your point, putting out sort of negative energy out there that's associated with that. So a big part of this is recognizing how you approach people, how you approach situations. If you're bringing your fixer, you're bringing judgment. That's the first thing out of the gate. And that's painful and people do feel it. And, you know, I think, yeah, I think I suffered, you know, from that, from that a lot, actually, you know, just socially is that people felt me coming with my ideas. I was so proud of my ideas, you know, and it really, it's, it's just not, I don't know. It's just not the thing to bring to the table is, is that, that kind of judgment. And so don't, don't protect judgment when you're starting to work. I know that, you know, there are certain things that are discerning that you need to decide for yourself. But I'm saying when you're just beginning to do this with judgment and fixer, don't find rationalizations and justifications for why you're judging. Well, this one is an outlier. This one is, you know, it's justified. That's not a good way to start. It's kind of like when you're doing an anonymous, a fixer is anonymous, you got to go cold turkey. You can't have the occasional drink, so to speak. It's a practice. It's a, it's a discipline. And and I, I unfortunately need to run. So the other strategy is you don't have to give it up cold turkey, but you just monitor it a, more, more diligently and be more consciously aware of it. Because I guess what I would love to say to all the, the uh, perfectionistic uh, perpetual fixers and problem solvers, you're more than that. You can be a great listener. You can be very compassionate and kind-hearted and a warm, friendly person that people like to hang out with and they, they enjoy your company, not only because you're, you know, you're good at fixing it, you're more than that. And sometimes the brain um, doesn't help us see that. So we're here to help you see that. I think so that's a, I, that's actually a great, you know, I I saw that as my value. I thought socially that's how I added value. Mm-hmm. So that was what the issue was. And that's why I brought it around with me all the time. All right. We're off. Love you, Jill. I love, love this too. conversation. I hope it was so helpful. And if it was helpful to you, if you enjoyed it, thank you so much for sharing it with your friends. Thank you so much for liking it. And if you're subscribing, hit the notifications. Thank you for all those things. It helps us know that we're assisting and supporting you, which is why we're trying to do this. <laughs> okay. Send it to everybody. All right. Bye-bye. Namaste. Ciao.